Hello, and welcome to Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. Now, this week, I'm actually going to be going through another topic that is not related to Ecclesiastes, but next uh, episode, I'm going to be going back to Ecclesiastes. However, it is going to be an excursus episode. There's something related to the previous uh, session on Ecclesiastes that I want to expand on for another week, where in the previous week we talked about the fact that Ecclesiastes looks at the curse of work and all of the things that have gone wrong. And so I'm going to be taking some time to go through what God's positive intention for work is, because that's a good thing to understand and not just have this damper on your soul of, man, work is terrible. So that's going to be what's coming next, and then we'll be going back through the main passages of Ecclesiastes. But I thought that was a relevant excursus to take, so we're going to be taking it. But this week, uh, there's a different topic entirely that I'd like to address. And specifically, this is a topic that I myself have been thinking through for several years at this point. So I started thinking about this about eight years ago, and I've been just in the background thinking about it more and more and working on the idea more and more. And so this is the first time where I'm actually going to be sharing it with someone that isn't myself. And I'm hoping that it's very helpful. And specifically, we're going to be talking about God's sovereignty. But more specifically than that, we are going to be deriving God's sovereignty as a consequence of his self-existence. And so that is the entire idea that, idea that I'm going to be talking about today. It's the fact that if God is self-existent, and if God is the only self-existent thing, both of which are true propositions that I'm going to quickly establish— but if God is self-existent and nothing else is self-existent, it is a necessary consequence that God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. And so at first, uh, I guess not first glance because you're hearing this, but at first here, that might seem very, very strange to be drawing that as a necessary logical consequence of God's self-existent. The line doesn't necessarily just pop into your head immediately. But the thing that I'm going to discuss today is I'm going to argue and I'm going to demonstrate that if God is self-existent, and he is, and if God is the only self-existent thing, and he is, it therefore follows that God must be completely sovereign over absolutely everything. It's just simply not possible for God to not be completely sovereign over absolutely everything if he is in fact self-existent and if he is the only self-existent thing. So, as you can probably guess, this is going to be a somewhat heady, uh, heady episode, but all the same, I'm hoping that it's very helpful. Over the course of thinking through this issue, I have personally come to some very interesting conclusions that are related to it, and specifically uh, about the way that God's sovereignty harmonizes with human accountability. And so that was not something that I was expecting to come to a more firm conclusion on as a result of this specific line of reasoning. But as we think through God's self-existence and how that leads to God's sovereignty, I think it's going to be helpful, first of all, to establish what sovereignty even is, because we should know what I'm talking about. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means that God is self-existent. So the first thing is that when we talk about sovereignty, there are two kinds of sovereignty that something can that we can be talking about. First of all, we can talk, be talking about sovereignty in terms of right, where you have the right to tell someone what to do, or you have the right to exert some sort of influence over something. But then there is also sovereignty that comes through the, the might that you have. And so as an example, 
uh, when we talk about the sovereignty that a parent has over their child. If you are a parent, you actually have authority over a child, over your child, and that is a rightful authority. A parent has rightful authority to tell his child what to do. But at the same time, you also have might authority. If you are the parent of a child and this child is like, I don't know, second grade, then one of the things that you're able to do as the parent of that child is you are actually able to compel that child's obedience. That even if that child does not want to do the thing that you want him to do, you can actually make him do it. And in fact, there are entirely legitimate ways for that to happen. Like if you are a parent and you never compel your child's behavior, you're probably parenting wrong. And there are absolutely ways where that can come about in a, um, in a abusive way, in an abusive way. But just as a rule, as a parent, you both have the right and the might to compel the behavior of your children, and you are supposed to exercise both aspects of that sovereignty. On the flip side, you can have situations where someone has the might to be sovereign over something, but not the right, and that would be something like if you kidnapped a child that wasn't yours. Do you have the right to compel that child's behavior? No. But if that child is in your power, you can technically still do it. You have the might to compel their behavior. And so that's a very uh, negative situation. If someone has the might but not the right, that's going to be a rough time. But there are also situations where someone has a rightful authority, but they do not have might to compel obedience. And the example I'm going to use for this is like marriage. In a marriage, one of the things that we know from the Bible is that the man has authority over his wife and the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. However, if you read the passage of Ephesians, it tells husbands to love their wives and it tells wives to submit to their husbands. But what it does not do is tell husbands to enforce their wife's submission. And that's something that much is made of whenever that passage is taught, at least in my experience. And that's an interesting thing that in a sense, the, the husband is supposed to have authority over the wife and the authority of the husband is not akin to the authority of a parent, but it is a true thing that a husband has authority over his wife, and yet a husband does not have the right to compel that authority. And so there are situations where perhaps a man is able to compel the behavior of his wife, and those tend to be, you know, abusive marriages. But especially in the modern day, one, there are absolutely situations where the wife is more physically capable of compelling the husband's obedience than vice versa. There are situations where that happens. And in situations where that is not the case, there are also situations where a wife can just leave. So the ability that a parent has to compel the behavior of a child is not present, at least to the same degree, in, the, in a marriage. So a marriage can be a situation where you might have the right of authority, but you do not have the might to compel. So when we talk about sovereignty, it's just basically this, that idea. There is the right that you have to rule something, and there is also the ability to compel obedience. And so when we're talking about God's sovereignty, it, it breaks down into those exact same categories. God is sovereign. Well, what does that mean? When we talk about God's sovereignty, it means one, God has the right to control his creation. God created his world. That means that God owns the stuff that he created. That means that God owns me. That means that God owns you. And one of the things that comes along with that is that God has the right to tell us what to do. So, for example, when God says you shall not murder, God has the right to tell us that we are not allowed to murder. But when God says to Noah in Genesis 9, I have given you the beast of the field for food, God has the right to tell us you're allowed to kill a pig, you're not allowed to murder a man. 
And so God, as the sovereign, as the creator of all things, he has the right to do that. And then humans, of course, disobey God frequently. But God has the right to tell us to do those things. But generally speaking, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his might. We are talking about God's ability to make what he wants to happen, happen. And specifically, we're talking about the fact that God has control over even behavior of heavenly bodies, the behavior of animals, and the behavior of people. That there isn't anything that happens in God's world that God doesn't have control over. And I'm not trying to spend most of my time uh, in this lesson on the biblical basis of this, so I'm going to very quickly move through some of the biblical support of this idea. But, for example, I like to pair Proverbs 16.33 with Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so the thing that's significant here is that the author of Proverbs, which I believe that this one is is by Solomon, but I need to double-check the section, so the author of this proverb is saying, yeah, let's, let's think of the most insignificant, random thing that happens, the casting of a lot, which a lot is kind of like casting a die or flipping a coin. So the casting of a lot, that's just a random thing. This is like saying when you flip a coin, God's the one who decided if it landed heads or tails. And that was specifically within his purview, and he's the one who caused its outcome. That when the Proverbs think of the most insignificant, small, random thing that happens, God was in control of that. And so we might say that wherever the electron is in the electron cloud, from moment to moment, God is in control of that exact thing. That every most random thing that you can think of anywhere in the universe, God is directly controlling the outcome of that thing. And so on the small scale and the random scale, God's in control of that. Likewise, Proverbs 21.1, it says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so this one, this is significant for two reasons. Reason number one, while the lot is a very insignificant thing, the most insignificant thing is in the hand of, is in the hand of God, is in the direct control of God. And then the king's heart, that's the most significant thing. When a king makes a decree, that has ramifications and consequences for every single person in his domain. And so when you think about the thing that has massive influence in your life, it's the decision of your government. And this proverb is saying, oh yeah, the decisions that your government makes, those are the result of God's sovereign control. God is in control of the decisions of a government. So not only is God in control of a random insignificant thing, but God is in control of very, very, very significant things. And so from the, from the least thing, from the least significant thing to the most significant thing, God is in control. Additionally, when we talk about the king's heart, this proverb is also discussing the fact that God is in control of human decisions and human actions. And that means that God's sovereignty extends to people. That means that God's sovereignty extends to my behaviors and my decisions, and God's sovereignty extends to your behaviors and your uh, decisions. And so that has some pretty major ramifications. And some examples of that, where specifically I'm going to focus on the fact that God is sovereign even over human sin. 
And so in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which this is coming at the tail end of the Joseph story, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And after being sold into slavery, Joseph is functioning and rising through the ranks in Potiphar's house. And then by the sin of Potiphar's wife of lying and saying that Joseph assaulted her, Joseph is thrown into prison. And in prison, Joseph rises in the ranks of that prison again, and he's put over the rest of the prisoners by the guard. And then Joseph is brought out of prison through another set of somewhat random, you might say, circumstances. He is brought to the service of the Pharaoh. And then in the service of the Pharaoh, Joseph then provides for the nation of Egypt as well as the surrounding nations. And eventually Joseph's brothers come in a famine to Egypt to uh, survive. And Joseph meets up with his brothers again. And after this entire story ends, when Joseph's brothers come to him and they're concerned that Joseph might try to seek revenge, Joseph looks at his brothers, these people who perpetuated an extraordinary evil against him. And Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the thing that's significant about that. Joseph looks at the actions of his brothers and he does not say, you acted in an evil way, but God brought good out of your evil decision. That is not what he says. What he says is, you meant evil in your action, but God's intention behind your action was good. And think about that. That's significant. That is Joseph saying, God had total control over your actions and God caused your actions to be done because he meant good from it. Specifically, he meant the good of getting Joseph into Egypt so that he could uh, preserve the life of Egypt, the surrounding nations, and perhaps most notably the tribes of Israel from that famine. So God look, or sorry, so Joseph looks at the evil behaviors of his brothers and he holds God responsible for that, the fact that those behaviors occurred and he ascribes intention to God behind those behaviors. And I don't mean that in the sense that Joseph thinks God sinned. I mean that in the sense that Joseph says God was sovereign over your evil behaviors and God had a specific intention behind your evil behaviors. And you might say, well, uh, Joseph may or may not have been inspired when he said that. Like maybe he was just really intuitive, but mm, who knows? So I turn you instead to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 30 to 32. Another situation where the specific intention of God is stated as being what stood behind a sinful action of a person. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, one of the things that Moses is doing is he's discussing the history of uh, the people of Israel. And while they're wandering through the uh, wilderness, they fight against Sihon, king of Heshbon. And Moses quickly recounts that story. He says in chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his heart or sorry, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jahaz. And so you have a situation where God had decided to give Sihon's land to Israel so 
He caused Sihon to have a hard heart and then to sin by attacking God's people. And after God had purposed those things, then Sihon comes out against the people of Israel and Israel conquers him. So God causes the sinful actions of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, so that he could bring about a specific result, namely the occupation of that land by Israel. So God is sovereign even over the sinful decisions of people. And God is also sovereign over the uh, positive decisions of people, but the sinful decisions of people tends to be the more emotionally challenging for people to hear from, so I want to quickly move through that. And to to bring this further, Romans chapter 9 is an entire chapter that talks a lot and deals a lot with the sovereignty of God in whom he is kind to or whom he is not uh, merciful towards. And it says in in verse 15 through 18, Paul says, For he says to Moses, he being God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, which it is notable that this is in the context of salvation. And verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so in that situation, Paul is saying, and he's making the argument, God is sovereignly in control of every single person whom he saves and every single person whom he doesn't save. And the example that he gives is Pharaoh because Pharaoh is the Pharaoh of Egypt and Pharaoh makes the sinful decision to ignore God's commands. And God says, I brought Pharaoh to power so that Pharaoh could sin so that I could oppose him, and as a result of that, show my glory through my dealings with him. Where God is uh, personally saying, I brought about Pharaoh's sin for my purposes. And then, of course, we have James chapter 1, which looks at this situation. And before I go to James chapter 1, I actually want to look again at Romans chapter 9, and I want to look at what he goes to right after that statement. So after saying that he has mercy on whom he wills, one of the things that is a natural question of that is, well, you're saying that God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything, and that that means God is sovereign over the sinful choices people make. Well, verse 19 of chapter 9, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And that's the question of, if God is the one who is sovereign over my sinful choices, why are they my fault instead of God's fault? Why is God not the one who's guilty of sin? And further down, one of the things that Paul says about people whom God has not chosen to save, he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? that one of the really difficult conclusions that comes from that is the fact that there are people that God created for the purpose of sending them to hell. Brutally difficult to think about, but consider the fact that Paul describes non-Christians as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And in verse 23, he refers to Christians as vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. 
So that's a very emotionally difficult thing for us to think about. And also that's one of the reasons that there are a lot of people who they reject God's sovereignty as a doctrine. It's not that scripture is unclear about God's sovereignty, but it's a very, very emotionally difficult thing to wrestle with and sit with. So there are people who oppose it and there are people who are motivated to frankly disregard what the Bible does say about it. So God is sovereign over absolutely everything, and that includes people's sin, and yet we're left with an interesting situation, where on one hand, God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything, and that includes people's sin, but on the other hand, God himself is not guilty of sin. James 1, 13-15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, we come away with this conclusion. God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything, and that is from the least important, most insignificant, most random thing in all of creation, to the most significant, biggest deal things in anyone's life, like the decrees of a king, and that includes every behavior that a person takes. So God is sovereign over good deeds, and God is also sovereign over sin, where the Bible can ascribe to sinful actions by a person God's intention behind those actions, and yet God himself is not guilty of that sin. So I am not, or sorry, God is not accountable for the sins that I commit. I am accountable for the sins that I commit, and yet God is sovereign over the sins that I commit. So I just wanted to quickly give an overview of the biblical support for the fact that God is sovereign over absolutely everything. That is a biblical concept. But the thing that I think is interesting and the thing that I'm going to be talking about is the fact that if the only thing you knew about God was the fact that God is self-existent, and the fact that God created the world and everything in it, if that's the only thing you knew about God, the fact that God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything is a logical consequence of that attribute. The fact that God is self-existent and the fact that God created everything else, that essentially nothing else is self-existent. God is self-existent and he's the only thing that is self-existent. A logical consequence of that is the fact that God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. That if you didn't have any of the verses that I just referenced, you could still know God was sovereign over absolutely everything. And that's going to be the thing that I focus on for the remainder of this uh, podcast episode. So the first thing that I want to talk about is, what does it mean that God is self-existent? Well, let's first of all talk about the fact that God's self-existence is a very significant attribute. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, when Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush, one of the things that God, that Moses asks God is what his name is. In verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So God's name is I am who I am. Other translations of that, you could say, I am existence as I exist. God essentially says, says, I am unchangeable existence. He says, I exist. That's I am. I exist and I exist as I am. 
That is to say, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As James says, he is the father in lights in whom there is no shifting shadow or variation due, due to change. And so God's name, Yahweh, that is a form of the, say, of the word I am. So basically, whenever you see God's name in the Old Testament, it's the word I am, but a slightly modified version of it. So God's name is existence, or you could say God's nickname is existence, and God's full name is unchanging existence. That when God is naming himself, the thing he names himself after is the fact that he exists and he exists unchangingly. So when we talk about that, we refer to things like Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what that means. It means that before time existed, before anything else existed, God existed. That in eternity past, God existed. And God existed alone. God existed without anything else. And then everything else that exists, God created. And so when we talk about the fact that God is self-existent, what that means is nothing created God. God has no beginning. God has no origin. There is not some other thing beyond God that created God, but rather God himself exists. God himself has always existed and everything else is created by God. And so in Isaiah 44, uh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, God says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 44, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so the thing that's significant here is that, first of all, God created everything else. But the two things that are my starting point for this discussion is that, first of all, God is self-existent. Nothing else created God, but God himself has always existed as he is, and God is self-existent. The second thing that I'm working on, my second premise, is the fact that there is nothing else that is self-existent. And so, for example, going back through some of those things, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is a shorthand way to refer to the universe, which is to say everything. In the beginning, God created everything. And in fact, that's what Isaiah 44, 24 said. I am the Lord who made all things. God made everything, who alone stretched out the heavens and who spread out the earth. In other words, heavens and earth, like Genesis chapter 1, 1 said. And that's the basis for the fact of our monotheism. The reason that we believe that only God is God is because only God is self-existent. Everything else that exists, God created which means that the most fundamental distinction between God and everything else that exists is the fact that God is self-existent and everything else was created by God. So the most fundamental distinction between me and God is the fact that God exists on his own, but I derive my existence from something else. So I'm not God, but I am created by God and my existence is sustained by God. 
and that is the most fundamental distinction between God and everything else that exists. And so, Colossians 1.16, For by him, that is Jesus, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, you have that, that, that couplet again, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, when we say that God is self-existent, it means that God exists on his own. The Trinity has always existed, and everything else was created by God and is sustained by God. So, let's talk about why that leads to God's sovereignty. And this is the reason why. First of all, which this is going to be a bulky section, so we're going to move through this somewhat slowly. So first of all, the fact that God created something, it also then is required that what God creates, God has to sustain. That is to say that if God stops actively maintaining the existence of something that he has created, whatever he stops actively maintaining the existence of simply ceases to exist. And this is a hard thing for us to conceptualize because what we are used to is being able to create something and then set it down and walk away. And then when we come back, it's still there. But the reason that we are used to that is that all of our creativeness, everything that we create is derivative. And what I mean by that is we create things from pre-existing materials. And in the case of something like a, like a clock or a watch, it can function after you leave, but again, it's created from pre-existing materials. So I can make a clock and I can set that clock down and walk away from it. I can leave it on a table and it'll, com- it'll continue to function while I'm gone. But this is why it's significant that God is pre-existent and that God is self-existent and that nothing else is self-existent. When I make a watch and I set it down and I walk away, I am making a watch out of pre-existing material And something else is sustaining the existence of that thing. But in God's case, there was no pre-existing material. God had to bring all of the particles of the universe into existence. God had to bring into existence all of the materials that make up everything in the world. God had to bring those into existence and God has to sustain their existence. And so God is the sustainer of all things which I'm actually going to take another look at Colossians chapter one, because I believe that it specifically says that as well. That's right. Yep. So I, I quoted Colossians chapter one, verse 16 earlier, where it talks about the fact that Jesus creates all things, but it also says in verse 17, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So scripture specifically says that not only did God create everything, but God has to sustain the existence of the things which he has created. So let's just dive into that further because not only is it the fact, is it true that God is the one who created the particles that exist, but God is the one who has to actively maintain the function of the particles that exist. So I'm going to use the example of gravity that when we talk about gravity, the fact that one thing is able to exert gravity on another thing and then cause it to move as a result of its gravitational pull. The fact that gravity happens, that is somewhat similar to a clock that ticks. And so I'm going to give you an example of 
a uh, specifically a play clock, and we're going to get back to gravity after this, but we're, we're diving another layer deep into the illustration. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with a play clock where it's um, it's essentially like a cardboard clock and there's a handle on the minute hand. And then when you turn the minute hand of a clock, then the hour hand on that play clock, it rotates along with the minute hand in the proportion that it's supposed to for an actual clock. Because those of you who are familiar with analog clocks, you're aware that for one full revolution of the minute hand, the hour hand is making one twelfth of a revolution. So if you rotate the minute hand 12 times, then the hour hand will have made one full resolution, revolution. And so the way that behavior is going to have to exist, because there are not pre-existent structures that God can hang his creation onto, there are not pre-existent laws that exist that God is able to allow to simply function without his intervention. What has to happen is something akin to if you had that clock, but the minute hand and the hour hand weren't connected where we think of it in terms of I can crank the minute hand. And as a result, the hour hand will, will turn. But in reality, it's more similar to I have to turn the minute hand. And then with my other hand, I have to move the hour hand exactly how much it's supposed to move based on how much I move the minute hand. So I have to make that calculation. I have to understand that proportion. And then I'm the one who has to personally move the hour hand as much as it needs to move corresponding to the minute hand. Another example that you might consider is a game of chess. If you are familiar with the game of chess, then one of the things that you're aware of is that pieces on a chessboard have specific ways that they have to move. But if you're playing chess, one of the things that you are also aware of is that while the rules of the chess game dictate that a bishop can only move diagonally, I can still take that bishop and I can still move it horizontally. I, as the person playing the game, I have the option to take that piece and move it somewhere that the piece isn't allowed to move because the rules of the game are being imposed onto the board by the person playing the game. And so we say that the bishop can only move diagonally. That's not because the bishop can only move diagonally. That's because by the rules of the chess game, we only choose to move the bishop diagonally. But we still have to be the ones that move it. The bishop doesn't just move on its own, for example. And so, if I get back to the gravity example, it means that whenever you have a law, a natural law in God's world, which God created... God not only is sustaining the existence of the particles and things that exist in the world, but God is also the one who has to administrate their behavior. That when you have an object that's being affected by the gravity of another object, God is the one who actually moves that object. That God has to directly move that object. And that what God is doing is he is aware by the rules of the universe that he has made, the rules that he has decided will govern the universe, God is moving that object the way that it should move based on the forces that are hypothetically acting on it in the world that God has made. Where essentially, from moment to moment to moment, God is running the simulation in his mind of how things should behave, and then he's causing them to behave as they should. And so... We're going to keep on uh, moving that up the complexity. We're going to keep moving that up in terms of complexity. So we're going to use the example of gravity one more time. One of the things that you 
are might not be aware of, and those of you who have taken a physics class, you'll be aware of this, but every single object in the universe has gravity that, ex- that it exerts on every other object. So for example, when you're sitting down at your dinner table, your plate is exerting a gravitational pull on you, and your body is exerting a gravitational pull on that plate. So you might not be aware of it, because smaller objects have weaker gravitational pulls, but your plate is attracting you. Additionally, the further you get away from that plate, the weaker the gravitational pull gets, where if you're five feet away from your plate, then the gravitational pull is stronger than if you're 100 miles away from that plate. But all the same, the plate is still exerting gravity on you. And so this is an interesting thing where at a certain point you get far enough away from another object or an object gets small enough that its gravitational pull is so incredibly small that you actually can't even feel it. You can't perceive it in any way. So a planet that's a million light years away, it is actually exerting a gravitational pull on you, but you can't perceive it. You can't feel it. But here's the thing. It still is exerting a gravitational pull on you. And what that means is that for every single particle in the entire universe, God is actually specifically aware of the gravity that is being exerted on that particle by every other object in the universe. And God factors that in to how that particle should therefore move. And then God himself moves it. So we're going to make two comments about that. First of all, For every single particle in the entire universe, God knows exactly how it is supposed to be affected by the gravity of every other object in the universe. That while that number is so incredibly small to us that we have no way to even perceive it or even to represent it, God knows exactly how much your body is being affected by the gravity of a star millions of light years away. God knows that. God is able to calculate that, and God is able to calculate that for every single particle in the universe, every single moment of all time. So that, first of all, that is a staggering amount of computational power that God has, the fact that he is able to do that. When God talks about knowing the names of every star that exists, he's kind of selling himself short. Like that's, it's the amount of computational power that God has is absolutely brutal. But God's not just calculating out the gravity that's being pulled on that specific particle. God also knows, well, what things are pushing it. Like, for example, is your hand pushing your apple? God is the one who has to actively administer the fact that your bones don't just move through the flesh of your hand every time your skeleton moves. God is the one who's making sure that all of the particles and cells and atoms in your hand are moving the way that they're supposed to based on the forces that are being exerted on them. God has to move them because there's not some other self-existent thing that actively moves them. There's not another self-existent thing that God can hang the function of the universe on. God has to actively do it himself because any other thing that he makes that supposedly does it, it's still just God doing it. And God has to essentially carry out the behavior of whatever law he chooses to make that governs the the way that the world functions. So the sheer computational power of God is absolutely staggering. But not only is the sheer computational power of God extraordinary, but God 
has to attend to everything that exists, otherwise it would stop existing. And then God has to actively not only compute how exactly that particle or thing should be behaving. And when I say behavior, I don't mean like me as a person deciding to move my arm. Like a planet moving through through space, that's also behavior. So God has to actively not only compute how every single object in his universe should be behaving, moving, changing, all of that, based on the rules that he has determined for his universe, which the computational power of that is staggering, but then God also has to actively cause that to happen. That after running the simulation in his mind, God then moves the particle exactly the way that it's supposed to move, accounting for the gravity of every other thing in the universe acting upon it. That God is the one who then has to take the apple that you're moving through your hand, and God is the one who knows how that apple is supposed to be reacting to the forces of your hand. That God is the one who then moves the apple in exactly the way that it's supposed to move, based on the force of your hand, based on the gravity of the earth, based on the gravity of every other thing that exists in the universe. And then God also is the one who understands how a photon is supposed to be moving through space or bouncing off in an object, how a photon is supposed to be interacting with the rods and cones in your eye, that God is the one who is actively maintaining the existence of, the properties of, the behavior of every single particle that exists, every single thing that exists in the entire universe, because if God were not actively maintaining that and maintaining that from moment to moment, it would simply stop happening and it would simply stop existing. Because all of us are constantly deriving our existence from God. Well, when you continue to move that up through the abstractions or complexities that exist, the levels of complexity, if you go from the atom level and you keep rattling that up, well, me as a person... I am a composite of all of those things that make me up. I am a composite of all of the atoms that make up my body. I am a composite of the neurons that are firing in my brain, of the processes that impact my mood, of the processes that impact the way that I'm able to think. I, as an agent, as a person who is able to act in the world, my decisions, the things that I think to do, are ultimately a result of my environment. They're a result of my personality. They're a result of my soul, the configurations of my soul across time. They're a result of the way that the neurons in my mind fire. And God is actively in control of every single one of those things. God is the one who makes sure that one of my neurons doesn't just suddenly go out of existence because he has to sustain their existence. God is the one who actually moves the charge through my neuron in accordance to the rules that he has set for it. God is the one who makes sure that according to the rules of his universe, my soul configures itself in one such way from moment to moment, and that my body and my neurons are configuring themselves in the proper way from moment to moment, according to the rules that God has set to govern the universe. And so, God creates the universe... And not only is he aware of every single particle that exists at all times, not only is God aware of how each of those particles is supposed to be arranging itself and functioning and behaving at all times and then causing them to continue to exist and causing them to then behave in line with the rules that God has created, but God also is fully aware of the path that the universe will take if it continues to continue on the path uh, that he has essentially set it on. 
that if God creates the universe and maintains its existence and continues to administer it to function, cause and effect in the way that it's supposed to from moment to moment without intervention, God knows exactly what will happen in the future. God knows right now if things continue to function as they are without his intervention, then God knows exactly the things that are going to happen at every place in the universe, whether it be the motion of planets, the motion of stars, whether it be the behavior of individuals. If God leaves things simply moving as they are moving, God knows exactly what will happen at every moment in every place in 500 years in 1,000 years, in 5,000 years, if God simply lets things keep going, if God simply lets the simulation play out with him continuing to maintain the behavior of all of those things and maintain the existence of all of those things, God knows exactly what will happen. So God is also at any time able to change that. God is at any time able to not maintain the existence of a specific particle or neuron. At any time, God is able to not move a particle in the way that it should move. Water might flow through a stream, and God is the one who takes every single water molecule and moves it in the way that it's supposed to, according to the forces that are acting upon it by other water, by the gravity of the planet that it's on, whatever it is. God is the one who is moving the hour hand just how much it's supposed to move based on how much he's moving the minute hand. He's running that calculation. He's causing that to happen. And because he is able to, if he so pleases, interrupt the natural flow of things, it means that when God allows things to continue by their status quo, he is making the intentional decision to have things play out the way they are playing out. So God can change the initial configuration of his entire world so that if left to its own devices, it will have a different outcome. God can do that if he so chooses. And once God has chosen an initial configuration of the world, God is then choosing to let it play out the way that it plays out without his intervention, which means that everything that happens is a result of God's specific choice to let it happen. However, God doesn't always do that. God doesn't always simply let the simulation play out. God doesn't always just have things move the way that they're supposed to move according to his laws, according to cause and effect, according to how these things compound. God doesn't always just maintain the status quo. There are absolutely times where God does not maintain the status quo. We refer to those as miracles. For example, when God suspends the laws of his universe to allow the Red Sea to split for the people of Israel to walk through it, when God decides when Joshua and the nation of Israel are fighting against their enemies to have the day not continue on its normal cycle, but instead to have the sun stand still for an entire day. When God decides to raise someone from the dead, when God decides to give sight to the blind, when God decides to give a hearing man his ear back after it's cut off by a sword, when God decides to interrupt the natural flow of how things should happen, when God knows, yes, this plate right here, it is being pulled by the gravity of earth, but instead of moving it in accordance to that gravity, I'm actually just going to have it suspend 
I'm going to decide that that axe head, despite the fact that it's being pulled down by gravity and it is not less dense than water, so it should continue to sink, I'm going to decide that instead that axe head is going to float. God is allowed at any time to suspend the natural function of his universe, to suspend the normal progression of his universe. And when he does that, not only is that a localized event, but that has consequences. Because for example, when someone who dies raises from the dead, all of a sudden, the future has been significantly changed by the fact that that person was dead and is now alive. If things had continued on their status quo and Israel had never crossed the Red Sea, history would be very different. If someone does any sort of small change, if God changes the normal progression of his creation in even a small way, then it's going to have massive ramifications across time and God knows exactly what the consequences will be across time, factoring in everything of every single time he makes any change to the status quo. And in fact, God does that somewhat often. It's not just in Exodus. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just during the life of Jesus that God was actively suspending the normal functioning of his universe, which by the way, is an act of God's agency, is an act of God's sovereignty. When God allows things to simply play out, he is choosing to have the world function as it does, he is making a decision to therefore have the consequences of that action play out. But one of the things that's also a miracle, by the way, is the salvation of people. Did you know that God is performing a miracle every single time that someone becomes a Christian? In Romans 3, 8 through 9 through 18, it says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul is describing every single person. And he says, every single person, if left to their own devices, will not pursue God. That every single person, it does not matter what circumstance you put them in. It does not matter when they live. It does not matter what they've learned. It does not matter what their experiences are. No person ever, unless God actively suspends the normal progression of time, suspends the normal progression of his world, will ever choose God. That there is no initial configuration of a person's soul. There is no initial configuration of a person's body. There is no time or place that a person can live where if God simply allows the situation, the simulation to progress normally, there is no person that will ever under any circumstance choose God. But rather, every single time a person becomes a Christian, God is actively deciding to not maintain the simulation, to not maintain the status quo, that God is deciding to cause their soul to move differently than it should. 
if he had not intervened. In John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So, in other words, your faith is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It doesn't come from yourself, it is not of yourself. Which, the point that I'm making is this. God did not simply set the initial configuration of the world and let the simulation play. The normal progression of time is not the only thing that happens. And also, when I say the normal progression of time, I'm reminding you, the world is not a clock that continues to tick when God walks away. God is having to sustain the existence of every single particle in your body. God is having to sustain the existence of every single object in the world. And God is having to administer the proper changes in configuration or form of every single object, every single particle in the universe in order to actively make it follow the laws that he has chosen to have govern the universe. So when I talk about the normal progression of God's universe, the status quo is not very normal. Like, that's kind of a brutal thing, that God is having to exert that level of attention and power moment to moment in order to allow the universe to continue existing and functioning. So, first of all, status quo. God chose the status quo, he set the initial parameters, and he let the uh, world continue, and he is choosing to have the world continue based on status quo. So that's the first thing. And he knows how the world plays out should he do that, and so he is sovereign over everything that happens in that circumstance. But it is also true that there are situations where God steps into the status quo, and he chooses to suspend the laws of nature, to suspend the normal progression of his universe for a time, for his purposes, and God knows exactly that is the effect that that will have across time into the future. But the thing that's significant is that as time to continues to progress, there are more and more situations where God had to actively step in, suspend the normal progression of the time of his universe for a time. And that includes the conversion of every person. And the point that I'm making and the fact that God has to actively change a person to cause them to convert is just to point out people have been getting converted for the last 2,000 years. And that is to say that when a person becomes a Christian, something that is equally or more miraculous than if the law of gravity were suddenly suspended in the room that you're in. That if all of the sudden, all of the objects in the room that you're in started floating because the laws of gravity were suddenly suspended there, that that is akin to the miracle of a person becoming a Christian. And the reason that I point that out is that God is not only fully aware of how time will progress if he just lets the simulation play out, if he continues to uphold the status quo, but God is also aware of how this one change is going to impact the progression of his universe. This one change is going to impact the flow of time. And God is also aware of how this change and this change over here, when they interact with one another, will combine to affect the flow of time. And God is doing that regularly. God often steps into the normal progression and function of his universe. That God frequently talks about the fact that, for example, when you pray, God intervenes in the normal progression of his time and the normal progression of his universe to then change the outcome that would have happened. So all that to say, 
that the progression of time is a combination of God directly intervening on every single particle in the entire universe to carry out the status quo or God in his direct intervention of every particle on the universe choosing at some times to not have things behave the way they ought to according to the simulation rules that God is doing those things and God is modifying things at some times or letting them play out at other times. And as a result, God is completely sovereign over everything that happens. That God could have chosen any set of initial parameters. God could have chosen a world that if left alone, and I say left alone implying his direct intervention and control, but simply uh, moving things according to preordained rules. So when I say left alone, I don't mean clockmaker, which I'm going to leave that alone now. I'm going to stop qualifying that every time I say it. But God could have picked any set of initial parameters that if left alone would produce any set of outcomes. And so he chose the world that we live in. God chose the history that we live in. God chose the initial configuration and God chose to sustain that configuration across time. And God also chose all of the different ways that he was going to intervene. That from eternity past, from the beginning of the universe, from before the beginning of the universe, God not only knew how the world would play out if left alone, but God also knew every single intervention he was planning to make, every single situation that he was planning to modify the normal progression of his universe in, God knew what all of those were going to be, and God planned them out ahead of time, and God knew how they were going to interact, and so God chose the specific story that we are living through. That when someone shoots me in the leg, which no one's ever done that, but like hypothetically, if someone took a shotgun and blew my leg off, that God chose the world in which that thing would happen. God chose the initial conditions that if left alone would produce a result when combined with all of the ways that he was planning to intervene, God chose to choose the world in which someone came up to me with a shotgun and sinfully decided to blow my leg off. And so in one sense, that person sinned. That person of their own accord chose to blow my leg off. And so they are accountable for that. But by the same token, it is theologically correct for me to then pray and say, God, why did you cause my leg to be blown off? And I don't necessarily mean that in like the bad attitude, like, God, how dare you? But I mean, I can genuinely pray and say, God, you were in control of that. You made the decision to have a universe where it played out in such a way that my leg got blown off at that time, at that place by that person. You were in complete control, complete unilateral control of the fact that that happened. You decided to create a scenario that if normal things played out, my leg got blown off. You decided not to intervene in that person to, in that moment, cause them to, against perhaps their um, normal character, to not shoot me in the leg. You decided to let that play out when you could have stopped it, and you are the one who created a universe that caused that to be the situation. So I can I can theologically correctly talk to God and ask him about what would have been your intention behind my leg getting blown off in the same way that Joseph can look at his brothers and speak to the intention of God in their sin. That Paul can say in Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. 
that I can look at that situation and I can say, not only was God in complete control over that person when they blew my leg off, but I also know because of God's character that he had a specific intention behind it. And so when we look at this, one of the interesting things about this is it actually puts a kind of distance between the sinful behavior that a person carries out and God's accountability. God didn't shoot my leg. God wasn't like, it's not that God was possessing that person and then against that person's will, causing them to pull the trigger and blow my leg off. But rather, that person is choosing to blow my leg off, but it is ultimately the result of God's configuration of the world, of God's movement of particles, and then you rattle up the chain and ultimately God's going to end up being in control of the behavior of people as a result of that, um, that chain. I'm forgetting the word. It's like a chain reaction, basically. But as a result of that, God is in direct control over that person's behavior. God chose the world in which that person would behave in that manner. God continued to let it play out. God is in control of that, complete control of that. And the reason why is because God is the one who was sustaining all of those processes. God is the one who was sustaining the existence of all of the things involved. And God is the one who was choosing not to intervene. And God is the one who chose to have that situation come about by intervening when he did in the past in all of the different ways that he intervenes. And God still does intervene, both by the salvation of people and by other things that God does. And God reserves the right to act in a supernatural manner at any time in any place. But in all of these situations, because God has so much raw computational power, and because God is exerting his influence and control on absolutely everything that exists at all times, it means that God is necessarily completely sovereign over every single thing that ever happens, ever, including human behavior. And that is a necessary consequence of the fact that God is self-existent, that you can actually reason straight from the God's self-existence all the way to God's complete total sovereignty. It is not possible for God to be self-existent and be the only thing that is self-existent and then not have complete and total control and sovereignty over everything that happens in his world at all times, everywhere. It is not possible. And that means that it is not possible for God to not have complete sovereign control over the behavior of every single person in his world because God is self-existent and we derive our existence from him. And the natural functions and processes that govern God's world, those are the rules by which God can, can those are the rules by which God decides to move and reconfigure everything in his world, but he is the one who has to actively move all of those things. That in the same way that when you're moving a piece on a chessboard, there's nothing preventing you from moving the bishop horizontally other than your decision not to move it horizontally, that that is exactly what God is doing at every level of complexity of his world at all times everywhere. And as a result, he is sovereign. And so just to finally restate my, my proposition, God is self-existent. 
God is the only thing that is self-existent. Because God is self-existent and nothing else is, everything derives its existence from God. That means that God not only created everything, but God also has to actively sustain the existence of everything that exists, and that God also is the one who has to actively maintain and carry out every single natural process that exists, because every natural process is ultimately just a description of the rules by which God is moving pieces on the board. God is choosing to move everything as it ought to move. God is the one who at every moment is computing how everything ought to behave at every level of complexity and maintaining its configurations and its movements and its changes in configurations over time. And that as a result, when those consequences simply rattle up, it results in every behavior and every action and everything that ever occurs. That God chose the initial preconditions of the world that he was going to create. He chose the initial configurations, knowing exactly the story that that would produce in his world if left alone, and also knowing all of the different ways he was planning to intervene in it and how that would therefore impact the flow and progression of his universe. And God is the one who then carries out those progressions and his interventions at all times. So, God is self-existent. God is the only thing that is self-existent. Therefore, God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. It is actually not possible for God to be the self-existent creator and sustainer of the universe and then not also be completely sovereign over absolutely everything. It is a necessary condition. And so here's the thing that I want to then um, essentially draw from this. Those of you who are familiar with Molinism which I am not going to walk through Molinism, but Molinism is spelled M-O-L-I-N-I-S-M if you want to go back and think through that. I'm not super aware of it personally. I haven't worked through it carefully. But what I've just described is extraordinarily similar to Molinism. And if I knew Molinism better, I might be able to say that it's the same. But I, I frankly don't. I've only heard of it. But one of the things that's surprising to me personally is that I am personally not very, I was never particularly impressed by Molinism. It always seemed like it was underplaying God's sovereignty by underplaying the direct influence that God must have over everything in the universe as its sustainer. But as over the years, I have continued to think through God's self-existence and the implications it has, one of the implications that I've come to is this exact uh, model of God's sovereignty. And it sounds, based on what I know of Molinism, it sounds like Molinism. And so that has been an extraordinarily surprising thing to me because I never liked Molinism for a lot of reasons. But I never liked Molinism. It just didn't sit with me and it just kind of felt off. But the fact that I can reason to God's sovereignty from God's self existence and it sounds exactly like Molinism is really, really interesting to me. Another thing that I'm going to point out is On Grace and Free Will by St. Augustine is another book that deals with God's sovereignty and how it uh, harmonizes with human accountability. How can I be accountable for my actions and not and God not be accountable for my actions when God is completely sovereign over even my behavior? On Grace and Free Will is a book by St. Augustine that discusses basically that issue. And it's the best book I've ever read on the issue. 
And I don't think that anything I've said in this podcast contradicts anything that he says in that book, or at least any of the ideas in that book. I haven't read it in a while. I'd have to, I'm planning to read it again soon. And perhaps I'll read something and be like, ha ha ha, I didn't remember that. Ha, this is contradicted. But as far as I remember it, the ideas that he puts forth in that book are entirely consistent with what I've just talked about in this podcast episode. And so that's extremely interesting to me, that the model of God's sovereignty that is produced when you reason to God's sovereignty from God's self-existence is basically Molinism. That was genuinely surprising to me. So, like, I'm just putting that out there. It's interesting to me that you can reason to God's sovereignty from God's self-existence and that the manner and, and that the path that that reasoning takes you through aligns with an existing model of God's sovereignty. So like those are the two big takeaways for me. One, God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. And even if God hadn't given us the Bible that explained that he was sovereign over everything, you can actually reason to that straight from his self-existence. Like God, if he had only told us, hey, hi, I'm God, I'm self-existent. Figure out the rest of my attributes based on that. God could have said that to us, and we could have reason to his sovereignty from it. But as you can guess, that's not necessarily something that you can just do in an afternoon. And so I think it's a very great kindness of God that even though you can reason to his sovereignty from his self-existence, he doesn't make you do that. God doesn't make you do that for a lot of things. Like there are a lot of logical consequences that you can get to from certain lower level things in the Bible, propositions in the Bible that God gives to you without you having to reason to them. And personally, I really appreciate that. But I just think it's helpful as an exercise every so often to look at some of these lower level propositions the Bible makes and demonstrate the connection they have to some of the higher level consequences that the Bible provides. God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. You don't have to reason from his aseity to figure that out, and yet you can reason from his self-existence to figure that out. And I think that's a really cool thing. Additionally, my view of Molinism over the course of the last few days has radically changed. At one point, I just kind of rejected at it because it seemed like a watered-down version of God's sovereignty, but now I'm seeing that if you have an understanding of what it means for God to let the simulation run, that Molinism actually works. Because my issue with it was that it didn't do justice to the fact that God has to exert specific unilateral control over every particle and thing in the universe for it to maintain its existence. I thought Molinism didn't do a good enough job of essentially explaining that and accounting for that. But when you understand that that is in fact what God's doing, it looks a lot like Molinism. And it also puts some distance between God's control over the actions of people and the actions of people themselves, where God is choosing the universe in which you committed that specific action where you as the person that you are in that circumstance are predictably going to produce that action. God chose the universe in which that is what would happen to bring that universe to pass. And so the result is you, you carry out that action. And so God has an intention behind your action and God is in control over your action. And yet God isn't the one who committed your action. And so following this model of God's sovereignty, it actually makes sense of the way in which God's sovereignty and human accountability can coexist, which is really cool to me that when you reason from God's self-existence, you get a model that separates human action and accountability from God's sovereignty and his lack of accountability for your sinful actions. Like that's just interesting to me. 
And so this was something that I thought would be fun to share, uh, partially just because I did not think, like full, full on, I did not think that reasoning from God's self-existence was going to lead me to basically Molinism. I did not think that, and I am genuinely surprised that that happened. And so that was something that makes this, I think, worth sharing. Uh, but also, I've been thinking about this on my own for like the last eight years, just thinking about the consequences of God's self-existence. And this is the first time that I'm actually letting this one kind of be accessible to other people. And part of the reason for that is I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I've done my own thinking on the issue. I've done my own evaluation of the ideas. But now it's for the next step of discourse, the opportunity for someone else to hear me say this and say, hey, John, I think you haven't considered this thing. And now that's going to be a neat opportunity to hopefully spark thought in you, discussion between people who might hear this. And also an opportunity for me to invite input from people who hear what I have to say. So I'm going to leave you with this. Sovereignty is kind of a heady thing. But personally in my life, there is no piece of theology that I have spent more time thinking about than God's sovereignty, partially because it's uncomfortable for me, just naturally. And there is no theology in my life that has been more encouraging to me throughout the decisions of my life, throughout the hardships of my life, throughout the difficult situations in my life. There is no thing that I have learned that has been more consistently encouraging to me in my life, that has more consistently informed the decisions I make in my life than God's sovereignty. It is wildly encouraging to me. And so while it might seem like kind of a heady thing and it might be an uncomfortable thing to wrestle with, like how is it that God is sovereign over the fact that this terrible thing happened? I get that that's emotionally hard to wrestle with, but John MacArthur said something a while back that I thought was very apt. He said, the only thing scarier than God being in complete control of the bad things in life is the notion that God is not in complete control of those things. Because at least when God's in control of them, one of the nice results of that is the comfort that comes with the fact that God is in control of them. So it's an uncomfortable thing at first glance, but I just got to say, I have been very much comforted by God's sovereignty over the course of my life. And I'm kind of hoping that as I'm saying these things to you, that it's going to help you get to a place where, like me, God's sovereignty, even if it's initially really disheartening and uncomfortable, it brings you to a place where you're able to look at God's sovereignty. And when you think about God's character, when his, he's sovereign, but he also loves you, that this would be the most encouraging thing that you are able to settle on. So that's a very long episode. That's kind of a heady episode. Uh, but even so, I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's interesting. And I hope it's something that gets you thinking. I, uh, I basically became a Molinist this week. I wasn't expecting that. Hmm. Well, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are sovereign. Thank you for the fact that you have spoken to us through your word. Thank you for the fact that you love us. And that that is something that no matter what hard thing happens in our life, no matter what tragedy strikes us or someone we love, no matter what happens, we are able to look at that situation and we are able to know that you are in control of it, that you are good and that you chose this world, that you decided to have this be the history of your world, that you decided to make this world as it is, that you decided to have time move through this specific path and that you are the one ultimately at the reins at all times. I pray that you would help us to draw encouragement from that. And I pray that you would help us not to minimize that and not to ignore the things that your word says about your sovereignty as it relates even to the salvation of people, 
but that we would take heart and that we would trust you, that we would believe you, and that, Lord, we would be encouraged by it because you are a great God. What could be more encouraging than who you truly are? Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scripture's Leaves. If you would like to reach out to me or read blog posts on other issues, you can visit my website at shakingscripturesleaves.com. I'll see you next time.